Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Davin Lim, a world-renowned dermatologist with special interests in cosmetic dermatology, lasers, devices, and injectables. Based in Brisbane, Australia, Dr. Lim is considered one of the world's leading experts for laser-treated skin disorders and rejuvenation therapies that include tattoo removal, acne scar revision, and laser resurfacing. If that wasn't enough, Davin also runs his hugely popular Instagram and YouTube profiles, where he breaks down skin and cosmeceutical myths in a no-nonsense language. How are you, mate? Were you working this morning or? No, I've been, uh, David, I know you're you're pretty good with bonsai stuff, yeah? Uh, uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, I've been... I've been doing uh, aquascaping, yeah. So it's I've been tying. Oh, yeah, um, with aquariums. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been tying moss to um, to wood all morning and <laughs> gluing it. So. As you yeah, do. Well, I, I some, they sometimes pop up on my YouTube feed because uh, they might. They're obviously, YouTube thinks it's kind of related. So related, it's interesting yeah. to see. It's all sort of uh, very foreign to me. I look at it and go, oh, that's amazing. But I don't understand they're doing like, you know, different water quality and yeah. Yeah, well, I used to do it. I used to be a marine biologist. So <laughs> oh, really? Really? Wow. That sounds like a Seinfeld episode. Didn't George Costanza say he was a marine biologist at some point? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> that's, that's a good hilarious. way to pick up chicks. Yeah, yeah. What do you do? I'm a dolphin trainer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would work well with the ladies. Everyone <laughs> loves a dolphin. So I guess we maybe we start off just by telling us your story, like how it all started for you. So I just learned that you're a marine biologist. So that was life before or after medicine and sort of how did you end up in, in dermatology? Yeah, well, I mean, I started marine biology in the 80s, yeah, and I knew at that stage if I got a job, it will be cleaning the fish tank at SeaWorld. So I thought I'd better reconsider my, <laughs> my career. <laughs> so I thought, hey, you know what, I got off of medicine in the first place. Um, six years is a good time to for me to think about what I want to do. Entered medicine, uh, and then, yeah, the rest is history. So I got into derm very early, um, I think my third year out, second or third year out. Um, I've always liked... Uh, like lasers and I've always like um, doing things with my hands. So yeah, I guess with Derm, it's, it's, it, it is consulting, but I guess you can subspecialize. Yeah. So I subspecialized into procedural work, uh, mainly lasers to begin with, but the last 10, 15 years, you know, basically fillers and neuromodulators. Yeah. Yeah. Did you spend some time in Ireland and the UK when you were training as well? Yeah, I did. So I went to Ireland. I went to the UK. I've, I've been around, I've been around the world. So the good thing with Ireland is that I managed to escape the politics here. So I went over there. I did some my registrar training there uh, first first two years. Yeah, uh, came back. Only had to do one year. Then after that, went to UK for a year and came back and finished. So at the end of the day, I think um, kind of fortunate because the politics of I'm sure you know with some of the colleges, it's. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. You, you're better, better spent outside the country, and I think I'm very fortunate to do so. I'm guessing well, you didn't have too many solar keratoses or skin cancers in Ireland. No, you'd be amazed you, you, because, you know, over there, um, the guys, when they go on holidays... They'll, oh, on holiday, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they make go, I'm sure you know, they go to the Canary Islands, they'll go there for two weeks, get brown, yeah, within that two weeks, skin type one, skin type two, they can't get brown, but somehow they get brown. 
come back and the cancers there are frigging huge. Yeah, because, wow. Well, because no one tells you how to pick them, yeah? So that is that is that necrotic um, rodent ulcer in your scalp for the last 15 years and people <laughs> won't miss that, yeah? So yeah. It's like, I've um, never seen bigger cancers except in, in Ireland, yeah? It's huge. Wow. But it's uh, people just sort of binge sunbake over there, don't they? So they're sort of living in virtual darkness all year and then they yep. just expose their white skin to like the Mediterranean sun and they're they've got no melanin built up and they just get, they just get hammered. hundred percent. Yeah. And that's where I guess the, um, that's where the malignancy comes in is that short, short, short periods, but so much intense UV over a short period of time Mm. rather than the chronic stuff, um, that, you know, that most people have. So there they, as you know, yeah, they go over there into, to Canary Islands and just get, they just get named up yeah, for two yeah. weeks. They use frigging olive oil and coconut oil and the browner they get, the better it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy because everyone, or most, a lot of people with dark skin, want to be like you said, go some of the Asian countries and they're using like bleaching agents and all these sorts of things to make themselves what they perceive as beautiful because they (laughs) want to be light. And then all these people who are Fitzpatrick one and two that live in Australia, we want to be dark. It's it's crazy. (laughs) We always want what we can't have. And you know what? I think the when you look at the um, messages which uh, I guess the government's trying to put put forth from a healthcare point of view hasn't changed at all. When you look at the non-melanoma skin cancer rate, yeah, and the melanoma skin cancer rate since the 80s, since the slip-slop slap of the 80s, it hasn't worked, yeah. It has not worked at all. So the, the skin cancer rate isn't going down. In fact, skin cancer rates probably stayed the same and in some years actually going up. So maybe it's better uh, pickup, but it's just not getting through to the public, yeah. Yeah, that's a shame. I mean, like when I look at my kids in preschool and stuff, they're really on it. They they understand hats and, you know, hiding in the shade and all that stuff. So maybe the younger ones will will pick up that education. But as you say, you know, teens and above, they, they want to be on Bondi. They don't give a shit about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. Um, Devin, why did you want to go into cosmetic dermatology versus sort of more medical? What, what inspired you to do that? Um, I think, look, a lot of my, I guess, my mentors, yeah, so I'm sure you guys know Greg Goodman, Phil Becker, a lot of the, um, with all due respect, the older dermatologists, yeah. Mature. They're great. Mature. Yeah, mature. <laughs> but I would say the wise ones, yeah. So um, <laughs> I'm kind of lucky in the sense that, uh, especially Phil Becker, who's a really good laser dermatologist in uh, Melbourne, a really good friend of mine, and I, they mentored me throughout my uh, training, as in postgrad training, Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the first patient I ever filled was with uh, Phil Becker. So we were using Perlane underneath the eyes back probably about 12, 13 years ago, yeah? Right. Yeah, yeah right. Gosh. What, what was around at that time? Because like Perlane or, or that sort of brand is, was <laughs> the first filler brand. Was that the only one around? Um, that and the, the R brand, yeah. But that's before the Vicross technology. So, yeah. uh, in fact, I, I came in just when uh, we didn't have to do uh, – well, I came in, it's basically we just finished the uh, Rustacombs from uh, Collagen. So that's from about 15 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, yeah. I have no idea what that is. What are they? Uh, <laughs> hyaluronic acid used to be from Roosters. No, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Terms, yeah. So, so they, they used to actually use that as um, as hyaluronic acid, and you have to do uh, a patch test first. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so if you made a mistake, would they call that a cock up? Yeah. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> Dad joke. There you go. First one for the night. <laughs> what was the state of the cosmetic market when you first opened? What were people asking for, and, and what were you doing day to day? 
Well, I mean, it's funny. When, when I first started private practice, um, there was no such thing as a website. In fact, I, I first started a website and the college really hated it. Like, well, what's this website thing, you know? Yeah. It's social media, it's not, not good. So um, at that stage, it was the neuromodulators coming through, yeah? Mm-hmm. And the, the old-fashioned way we used to do um, uh, dermal fillers, uh, as in point and shoot, everyone had big lips, everyone had big cheeks. No such thing as finesse. Um, we didn't know it much about anatomy at that stage. It's just yeah. like, oh, there you go. Just uh, that looks deflated. Use a needle. Um, make sure you don't hit anything. Squeeze, and that's it. So I mean, it's very I mean, different. Had yeah. a, blind, a blindness or necrosis in those days? No, I mean most of the blindness at that stage were from fat transfers. Yeah, right, so that's yeah. pre. That was pre HA days, and you know when we're looking back at the fat transfers around the nose area and around the cheek. Um, very high rate of, especially in Asia, yeah? Yeah, definitely. So when AJ pillars came, everyone thought it was amazing because, um, you know, unlike fat where, as, as they say, you know, um, a good place to, a good way to use fat is to put it in somewhere where it does not belong, yeah? But even <laughs> then, you may have, um, you know, 30% resorption, no resorption, 70% resorption, so it, it's... Uh, and plus, once you hit a vessel, you, you're screwed, yeah? So when HAs came through, it was basically a revelation. Yeah. And did you play with fat transfer originally? <laughs> briefly. Briefly, yeah. I was never very good at it. Uh, maybe it's because of the uh, things I tried to do. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, you, you'd be amazed. Um, have you done much fat transfer at all? No, not at all. It's, I, I love the the sort of get out jail card of being able to dissolve and it's not permanent. <laughs> and I, I lo- you know, that that's like, for me, that's a game changer, like you said. So now doing fat transfer, it, you know, it obviously involves harvesting fat from somewhere and then your risk goes up and then you've got yeah. two sites, a donor but, but site. Now, but not only that, it's not very malleable. So I learned in the US and it's basically like when we're doing lips, it was literally cannula from here all the way through, squeeze it like a sausage, mold it, and there you have, there you have it. No vermilion board and nothing. It's just big sausage lips, yeah. <laughs> top yeah. and bottom. But, you know, in, in the US, the, a lot of people dig that look back then, yeah. Well, the um, a lot of surgeons are. It seems to be making a bit of comeback in some surgical um, circles, like we've Doctor um, Doctor Moradi and Doctor Tabakoli, and I think was Doctor Astogi as well. They use it a lot in yes. sort of their breast augmentations. They're sort of using like hybrid techniques where they're using the implant and using uh, fat grafting to sort of mask demarcation lines and to give a more natural result. So it seems to have found its place. But um, yeah, it's interesting seeing it have a comeback. Yeah, yeah, d- definitely. Because now I guess this this more compared to hyaluronic acids, in theory, with uh, with fat with the stems. Yeah, um, some some I guess some practitioners believe that you get good dermal remodeling and epidermal change. Um, <laughs> I think it's minimal. Uh, that they can sh- certainly show that um, through magnification and and you know basically really really honing in. But I think at the end of the day, it's minimal compared to um, compared to what good skincare lasers and all the energy devices can deliver, yeah. Fair enough. So, Davin, tell us about your practice now. What, what's the name of your clinic and what are you doing day-to-day? I've seen your videos. You've got like a million lasers. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> tell us about what you do. Well, um, clinic's called Cutis, yeah, basically Latin for skin. Um, about 30% is still what I call medical derm, which means uh, things like acne scarring, uh, you know, burn scar, acne scars, traumatic scars, um, uh, birthmarks, pretty complex uh, derm procedures. I really like that because it's uh, 
it's I guess that's what we train for, yeah, uh, big bad stuff, and that still accounts for about 30%, 40%. The other 60% will be a mixture of energy devices, so everything from uh, lasers, uh, radio frequency, um, high-intensity focus ultrasound, uh, and then obviously with the uh, dermal fillers and neuromodulators, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And how many people was at your practice? Are you the main derm or do you work with other ones? I uh, work with quite a few other ones. I think work with about five or six, yeah. Um, but they're part-time. I'm the main procedural derm. The rest are mainly uh, medical dermatologists, yeah. And yeah. And then you've got your own injectable clinic or Medispa where Maya works. Is that right? No, I used to, so we consolidated that. I found it really hard work yeah, <laughs> because I thought, hey, you know, that it'll be great if we can if I can bridge the market. But then, man, it's like for me, it's just hard work. I think the more if you get a good practice manager, it, it's awesome, yeah. But you know, trying to trying to actually run staff in in three locations for me anyway, um, I found it a chore. And I yeah. think my, my downside is the business side of it. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, a lot of a lot of medical professionals struggle with that. It's you know you study your whole life to become a nurse or a doctor, and then all of a sudden you're in private practice and paying bills and marketing and insurance and all this other stuff. It's just like be like someone that's haven't hasn't done medicine before, going, oh, let's give it a crack. It's all right. Watch a few. I watch Davin on YouTube, and away we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you've got a, like, a, looks like you've got a fairly broad practice. You do things from, you know, I was looking at you do sort of a surgical, uh, you do S lifts, so surgical facelifts, you do um, obviously your cosmetic injectables, and then you do things like uh, resell, which I want to ask you about later. But like, hmm. how does your, how would you sort of break down your practice in terms of what are the most popular procedures that you're doing? I think, um, like I said, probably 34% medical. Um, and the most popular, I guess, would be, I still have a big resurfacing day. Yeah? And it's one of those where, you know, when you speak to, I guess, other practitioners in down south, they go, what, you're still doing fully ablative? They go, yeah, I still have to do fully ablative because I guess the um, geography of the way I am, the demographics, that, yeah. that's where people are, you know, in their, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, have an immense amount of uh, UV exposure and elastosis and epic wrinkles that <laughs> nothing else will remove by a fully ablative laser. Yeah. So that's still, um, I'll probably say I, I spend at least half a day doing that, yeah, um, using ablative lasers. In fact, using ablative lasers, probably that, that's the most common laser I use, um, but certainly, um, you know, the fraxels and, and the fractionated non-ablatives, uh, a lot of my nurses and, and uh, dermal therapists use. But for me, um, the most favorite is probably the old-fashioned CO2 and erbium. Yeah? It's, it's just because where I live, yeah? Yeah. And are you using fractionated erbiums and, um, and CO2s or are you using just the, the straight, the old-school? Uh, old school. Um, yeah. for, for me, when I do is old school, but sometimes if the patient needs, you know, for example, a fractionation, 10, 20, 30%, I usually send that yeah. to my nurses, yeah? Um, yeah. So I still do the old school stuff. And um, I think uh, obviously you and I understand what fractionated is. I'm not sure what Jake is, but I, I probably would imagine there's a lot of people listening, maybe some people that are even medical professionals that don't know. So maybe do you just want to break that down, like what the difference is um, between those sort of fractioned and un- unfractionated technology? Why yeah. don't we start with what's a laser? Yes. That would be good. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Mon- monochromatic light, yeah. So it's um, usually one wavelength, but it's, it's um, you know, the way things are going now, you have hybrid lasers where you're having two wavelengths and sometimes even three wavelengths in one laser. So there goes your monochromatic light and the hybrid stuff is now coming. And I think in the next probably decade or two, um, the majority of lasers will be hybrid lasers. 
So when we talk about fractional, as the name suggests, that was actually invented by Rox Anderson, the dermatologist in Boston. Uh, and he was reading the newspaper and he was just going, wow, you know, I don't know how he saw the pixels, but he saw the pixels on the, on the newspaper uh, and just go, you know what, this pixel uh, may be something. And, and, and so he started delivering fractions of laser light. And instead of treating the entire surface area, you treat a particular fraction, anywhere between 1% all the way, usually up to about 90%, but most frequently between 1% and 10%. So that's fractionation, which means the skin heals up a lot quicker. Your risks are a lot um, lower, yeah? But the downside is that most patients will need more than one treatment. So that's fractionation. The fractionation can be delivered in various wavelengths, everything from ablative, your erbium, your CO2, to non-ablative wavelengths. So ablative means you nuke out or you fry the top part of your skin, yeah, which is your epidermis. So when you look under the microscope, epidermis is gone. Uh, the non-ablative is when your epidermis is still there, but the laser affects the dermal parts. So that's a broad spectrum of um, yeah, fractionation versus non-fractional. Cool. I've just got my just about got my head around that. But <laughs> how, how does a laser work? Like, wh- what is the medium? Because some of them are ruby, some of them are you know other mediums. Like, how, how and why do you choose the lasers? Yep. So I can where derms and this is where I see where derms and plastics differ a lot. We think small, yeah. We think uh, because throughout the entire training, we're thought about histology and we're thought about where is it in the skin? Is it the epidermis, dermis, sub-Q? Anything more than that, <laughs> whether it be below the sub-Q, we're lost. So when I'm looking at the lectures and trying to follow the lectures and dissections, no matter how many bloody meetings I go to, I'm always going. It's like, (laughs) because we're taught ever since our undergrad years, we're taught with uh, microscopy histology. Yeah. Every time we see a patient, it's automatic. I'm just thinking, okay, what are the cells? Where are the cells? How thick is the dermis? Where's the pathology? And then for me to go below the sub-Q, especially with with injecting, it's like abstract to me. (laughs) Yeah. So so, uh, when we talk about lasers, to get back to your question in regards to that, we, we think back to the histology. What is it we're trying to hit? And basically, it's you need a target. And the yeah. target can be water, which is in your epidermis, dermis, so that's ablative laser, or it can be pigment. So in the pigment, you can have different spikes, you know, everywhere from um, yeah, 532 all the way up to 1064. Then we think about the depths. So basically, when we, when we look at a problem, we problem solving go what is the actual depth of it what's the chroma for what's the color what's the size and then match it with the actual laser yeah okay. so for example yeah, if it's sense. red we go let's use a vascular laser and then we work with the pulse duration we work with the wavelength and then we tear it in uh, accordingly and so can, histological can you, thinking yeah can you explain the wavelength as well i mean most people know that light is something that you can see and then you've got this thing called infrared or whatever. Like, how do you explain what the spectrum is and what does the laser wavelength mean? Yeah. So it's that uh, concept of the big word, yes, yeah, selective photodermolysis, which means basically you select a particular target. So that's where the wavelength comes in. Okay. But then it's a little bit tricky because you've got wavelengths, for example, a 532 wavelength. You can hit red, you can hit pigment as well. Yeah. And where it comes in, apart from the wavelength, is a pulse duration. So pulse duration is how short that laser energy is delivered. Mm-hmm. If we're trying to hit pigment, we want the short pulse duration. That's where the nano and the picoseconds come in. But we want to hit uh, a vascular because it's a larger target. We want a longer pulse duration. So that's where the millisecond lasers come in. Okay. Yeah. 
It's all becoming clear. It's falling into place now. And then just to confuse confuse things even further, you have things uh, like uh, IPLs or BBLs, which uh, they're not lasers, but they work in a similar way. So can you maybe just explain the difference there? Because there are some good ones. I know that IPLs had a bit of a bad reputation um, early on in the day, but now you've got like machines like Cyton with their BBL machine, which is phenomenal. Um, Yeah. I've been using that for years, yeah, for the last 13 years, Cyton BBL, and it's never missed a beat. So. Um, when it comes to, I think, look, when it comes to IPL, intense pulse light or BBL, broadband light, we're looking at spectrums of light using a filter. So something like 515 to 520, then we can go up to the different pigment filters. Uh, so it delivers a really intense pulse of light, usually in the millisecond, yeah? And it's basically a Swiss Army knife. So you can use it for to treat vascular, you can treat pigment. But still, when, when we look at certain things, for example, like freckles, yeah, or when you look at a decolletage, when you use laser because you, you've got a smaller spot size uh, and it's too pigment-specific or too specific, chromophore-specific, sometimes the IPL or BBLs actually do a better job. Yeah, so freckles, I think uh, BBLs do a much better job, yeah? And then when we're doing off, off the face, so extrafacial with, with the chest, neck, decolletage, hands, arms, I think that's where the IPL comes in. So it's still a very, very useful tool, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that why you've um, got so many lasers in your clinic? Um, yeah, I, I tried. <laughs> I tried to pick. That's why I guess with, with uh, when I lecture, I try to say, look, basically, we, we're at the end of the day, you're using your hands, and all you want to do is pick tools. Yeah, and as, as a sculptor or as an artist, um, I'm, I'm sure you guys know. Yeah, you need many different tool sets. Yeah, because you, if you got one thing, you, you're trying to actually make everything into a nail because you're, all you've got is a hammer. Yeah. So I think you do need a lot of lasers, even the same lasers, for example, like a CO2 lasers. I may have about three or four of those because the pulse duration works very differently. Mm. So, you know, when it gets more complex because when I'm treating uh, darker skin types, I want different types of pulse durations and, and different, types of, different types of delivery even within the same wavelength. Mm. Yeah. It can get very expensive. All these lasers are not cheap. No, so that's, it sounds like you've got a pretty not. expensive uh, toy set in your clinic. <laughs> it's it's crazy, yeah. Because when you, when you look at the consumables, when you when you do, yeah. I guess, um, you know, dermal fillers, neurotoxin, it's bugger all, you know, cannula, even a good TSK one's going to cost you, what, 10, 10, 12 bucks? Well, if the laser, you know, some good ones are a quarter of a million. Uh, and you might you may yeah. use that laser three, four times a week. But when we're dealing with birthmarks or burns, um, you know, especially at a specialist tertiary referral level, sometimes we buy stuff that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> mm. I guess yeah. that's why it makes sense to work with multiple colleagues who are, you know, utilizing different skill sets and different specialties. Maybe yeah, and refer, yeah. that, um, you know, that knowledge together. Mm-hmm. Definitely, because so, yeah, it gets bloody expensive. <laughs> So what are all the different things that lasers can do? I mean, I know of a few of them. You know, we covered a few just now, you know, pigment and vascular and I'm assuming yeah, tattoos fall into pigment as well. Yeah. Like, what are, like, how, like what, what can you do? Like what's, uh, what are all the different things that you can do with a laser? I guess if you, if you look at it, um, I guess, uh, from a logical point of view, yeah, from the top down, right, what do we want to do laser? We want to actually improve skin quality. Skin quality, I say to patients, basically, what's the color of your skin? Is it nice and, and like baby skin or is it red? Have we got brown? So that way we can split the pigment to red, we can split the pigment to brown. If we actually improve the red, improve the brown, you've improved the skin quality. Mm. Then we look at the texture side of things. So if they got wrinkles, if they got pores, yeah, if they got, I wouldn't say laxity because lasers are actually very uh, bad at, at you know, treating laxity. And in, in, in my opinion, lasers don't give volume. It can give volume, but if they do that, it's a total fluke yeah, by generating some collagen. So 
it's the um, it's the textural change. Yeah, so we're talking about the elastosis, the fine lines, the coarse lines, the wrinkles, the pores. So that's where lasers come in. So when we look at the top, uh, at least in my practice, when I look at the top um, few, the top cases of which we use lasers, apart from the hair removal and the tattoo, which is you know I guess a lot of people do use it. We're talking about things like melasma, yeah, so hormonal pigmentation, uh, age-related, so lentigines, sunspots, semkes, uh, elastosis, wrinkles. Those are the main indications for, for laser, yeah. Those probably account for about 80%, 90% of what I do. And then all the other stuff, the medical side of things, the scarring, the birthmarks, that's where lasers can come in handy as well. Fair enough. And with the tightening, I mean... Do you have a tightening machine? Is, does, does tightening even exist? Can you do it? Uh, predictably, no. Right. So no matter what, no matter what anyone tells you, and you know the the laser industry, the energy device industry is full of BS. Yeah, it, it's like you know you won't. It's like it's like buying a car. Yeah, but they they say instead of buying a dedicated um, track car, they'll say, look, this car can do everything. It can go around the the Nurburgring at record time, but you can go cross country with it as well. And it's just fabulous. So late on, I guess diverging here, but, but laser companies will tell you you can get unbelievable tightening with this, this, and this. Yeah, everything from the erbium with the um, you know with, with the forever young using a <laughs> very very minuscule heating all the way to high food, your old therapies, your damage, your whole lot. Um, it's unpredictable. Any good dermatologist slash plastic surgeon slash uh, laser operator will tell you it's unpredictable. Mm. There are predictive factors of which I guess when we analyze the patient, you go, well, this you're going to get a good result. More than likely, you're going to get a good result. Yeah, so we're talking about mild to moderate laxity. We're talking about good epidermis. Yeah, and sorry, good dermis, good dermal thickness. Yeah, that's why when when you go to places like um, you know in in Asia, you see a lot of things like old therapy and thermage. And these uh, devices have been going on and on for the last two decades. It must work in some patients, and it does. The reason being is that how I explain it is this. You know, if you have elastosis, you've got fragmented collagen, right? And to tighten this is very hard. But if you've got, um, I guess, sun-protected skin, but you've got loose collagen, you can tighten it. Mm. So it also depends on the depth of how much collagen you have. Um, and that's why when, when you go to Asian countries, generally speaking with the Asiatic um, type, we normally have a little bit thicker uh, dermis, uh, but most of us are sun-protected as well, yeah, because that's basically it's just with our melanin. So the, like, the, the skin tightening device, devices do have slightly higher um, efficacy in that kind of uh, patient, yeah? Yeah, when you're looking at someone in the 50s or 60s with a lot of sun exposure, even moderate sun exposure with a thin, you, you look at the dermis and go, well, that's pretty thin. It's not going to work. Yeah, mm. that's the sort of skin that when someone says, hey, can you you know, do a non-surgical liquid facelift? I'm like, nah, sorry, no. you need to go see a <laughs> Dr. Subio or someone else. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. when the uh, surgical comes in, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But, but the skin tightening devices, I mean, I still have quite a fair few of them, but and I still do use them. But for every three patients that we see, probably we knock back one or one or two at least, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and picking the right candidate is very, very important. I've always thought these skin tightening devices are like the the Loch Ness monster or Bigfoot. People have sworn they've seen it, but they, <laughs> no one can prove it. You know what I mean? It's just like like an urban myth. Because I've been in the industry for a little while as well. And, 
you know, you've had these companies promising, you know, skin tightening for, for, for forever. And it's just Probably, like, yeah. as you said, there's still no reliable device that you can, you know, you can look your patient in the eye and go, I'm, you know, 99% confident this is going to work. It's just, it's just not there. It's just not there. But time and time again, when you go to all these meetings here, yeah, time and time again, you see many speakers. That's why, I mean, I guess I'm jaded with this kind of industry because a lot, of, I would say, well, some of my colleagues like, you know, high self-esteem colleagues uh, in, in overseas, even here, they, they're doing this deck of slides presentations, trying to sell you this frigging device that, that they swear in their mother's grave will tighten skin. <laughs> and you just go, man, it's like, seriously. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, exactly. Um, whilst we're talking about lasers, but presumably you use other devices as well in conjunction with your lasers to do skin tightening. So what, yeah. what, what are you using? So I'm using, I've used a lot in the past, but right now I think my, this year, at least this year, my, my flavor is um, radio frequency, yeah. Um, the old Pelave, but they've rebranded it to Temsure. Mm-hmm. It's a radio frequency. Um, it's a very, very gentle treatment compared to something like uh, Thermage mm-hmm. and much more, uh, I guess, safe compared to something like old therapy. Because when we look at skin tightening, what we want to do is heat up the dermis we want to heat it up gradually, generally speaking, 43, 44 degrees, 45 minutes or so. Yeah. Some devices give a whopping big energy dose. For example, the HIFU, the high-intensity focus ultrasound, you know, your old therapy, your ultra transformers. They're the ones that go really deep. And look, uh, the, the side effects that you hear, the side effects that you, uh, I guess, read about, they do happen with that kind of uh, treatment, especially if you don't know what you're doing. So can you elaborate on that for people who have not heard of this? So basically you're delivering um, high energy, high focus ultrasound, high intensity focus ultrasound into a predetermined depth. Problem with that is if it's it's a lot of it's user dependent. You're you're moving very, very slow. So most of the time it's delegated to a dermal therapist or delegated to a to a nurse because Mm. we're not using laser light. So that's how I guess a lot of the uh, industry can get around the, the red tape because it's not actually a laser, so it must be safe. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those devices where, where I'm actually afraid of, yeah, because that can blow a massive hole in, in your face. Yeah, so if you get the depth wrong, and the company, all the industry would deny it, yeah, they'll say, no, there's no such thing as fat necrosis. There is such thing as fat necrosis, definitely, yeah. If yeah. you miss the actual dermis and you're into sub-Q and you're delivering, you know, four or five mils, really deep energy and pulse stacking, you get these massive holes which are almost irreparable in, 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 in patients. I've definitely seen injectable patients who've had um, old therapy or ultraforma done elsewhere yeah. and they're like, you know, they promise I would get a bit of skin tightening and I end up with a deflated cheek. Um, <laughs> so it definitely does happen. Definitely does happen. It's interesting. Like the, the American sort of doctors are sort of saying you can actually get volumization, whereas the Asian and Korean doctors are saying, no, 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 you can actually blast the fat and, and remove fat. Yes. I mean, this this is off-label. We use that to remove, um, you know, when, when you have a lot of jowling, yeah? Mm. I mean, this is – we've got to be very careful. But if you have jowling, you don't want to actually remove buckle fat removal yet. Basically, yeah. we use that um, and we pulse it around here and we know it actually removes fat. So right. the, the company will never say, um, yes, it's designed for that because it's just too bloody dangerous. But, yeah. yeah, I've used it before to actually, yeah, pulse and decrease the amount of um, subcutaneous fat here without doing uh, buckle fat fat removal. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I was going to ask um, – because you've got all these tools at your disposal and based on what Jake said before, and I know Jake has this struggle with patients that have just got horrendous skin quality, like they've just got so much sun damage, 
you've got such collagen and elastin depletion. Do you, do you sometimes will say to an injectable client, for example, yes, we can look at doing all these volume things, but let's look at clearing up your texture. Let's look at seeing if we can get some collagen stimulated. So you're actually giving yourself a better canvas to work with. Is that something that you sort of do routinely? Yeah, 100%. All, all, in fact, every day, yeah, especially when it comes to under the eye area. So, you know, when you look at lower lid, you've got laxity over there, you've got volume depletion, uh, your skin quality is pretty bad. Um, I always say it's, it's like um, making your bed. Yeah, you want to actually, if you want really good placement of your pillows, you take your sheet off first, um, you tighten everything, then you put your pillows in, pillows as in volume. So what I normally do is I tighten the, the um, uh, uh, skin first, whether it be with um, lasers or energy devices. And at the end, I use um, DHA filler. Yeah, so I think it's, it, it just gives me at least a, a more accurate placement. And sometimes I don't need to use as much uh, filler. Uh, because I've tightened the skin, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess your patients are self-selecting because they know they're coming to a dermatologist, so that's going to be at the forefront of everything that you say. It's going to be skin, 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 whereas they come to an injector and their immediate thought is, I need my lips or I need my whatever it may be, yeah, and it's, it's hard to have that conversation because they're not there for that. They don't want that because I'm not a skin specialist. So how do you recommend for injectors who aren't skin specialists to you know, bro broaden what the patient is actually there for and actually um, refer them appropriately? I think it's hard because the flip side is that I get these patients who come in and they want laser. When I look at them, I go, man, you don't need laser, you need volume. And they go, well, I'm, I'm sure you have. Well, no, for you, no, I realize, yeah, for, for injectors, you don't have that as much of a battle compared to me saying, look, you know, you need, you need, you, you would benefit from volume before um, improving your skin quality because there's not, nothing much of a skin wrong with your skin quality, but you have, uh, yeah, you can do volume replacement. Mm. Then I get the, the flip side and go, well, I need something that lasts more than a year or even two years. I want something that lasts forever. Then we're back in that freaking spiral where we're talking for half an hour. So I think it, it's, it's uh, it's funny, yeah, because I get the the flip side where where um, I'm there for volume replacement, looking at that, saying, you know, I re you really don't need a CO two laser; you really require volume. Yeah. So I think I think it's hard, yeah. It's really really hard to, to convince convince the patient, and I, I think by what you're saying to improve skin quality and improve the canvas. Um, that's a good starting point. So education is, is that, that's why I guess I do my Instagram, <laughs> trying to educate the patients um, and not just go on one thing and go, well, everyone needs uh, filler or everyone needs uh, a particular laser. But I think it's very challenging there. Yeah. How's, uh, how's laser technology changed over the last few years? Presumably it used to be pretty crude and now you said there's hybrid lasers and it's got pretty fancy like when you were first doing this, was there significant downtime and, and not so good results or have they always been good? Yeah, see, at the end of the day, it's this: if you have significant pathology, you need a downtime full stop. Yeah, and and there's a lot of laser companies would, would promise you uh, lots of results with zero downtime. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Yeah. So if you get issues with skin quality, generally speaking, you will benefit from an ablative laser. Uh, the companies nowadays, they try to peddle everything because once you buy something like a Pico laser and invest something like a quarter of a million, they just don't want you to do tattoos with that. It just doesn't pay off. So they'll extend everything into wrinkles, into pores, into acne scarring, into um, melasma, into the whole lot so that the ROIs are there. So when they show you a deck of slides going, buy this laser, you can treat this, 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 and this, and this. So to answer your question is that laser technology has improved, but when it comes to 
effective treatments, especially in patients with true pathology, when it comes to skin quality, very little has gone forward, yeah? Mm. However, you know, there's always exceptions. For, for patients with mild to moderate laxity, mild to moderate damage, certainly the fractionated, yeah, so the lasers which treat portions of your skin, non-ablative, something like a 1927 fraxel, that's been around for the last decade uh, and it's still going strong and I still really like the wavelength, yeah? Mm. So I think, you know, in the past decade, when it comes to advances, the advances have come in the short pulse duration lasers and the hybrid lasers. So things like combining old-fashioned CO2 with um, with a non-ablative and then that's a hybrid laser. Halo is one of them as well, yeah? Erbium yeah. together with your non-ablative or, or the U-laser MT with the CO2 with the uh, non-ablative. So that's probably it for the last 10 years and the picosecond lasers. Um, but then everything else is probably... Uh, pretty old, yeah? Yeah. Well, it seems like probably what's improved more so than anything uh, else is probably uh, the operator. So in terms of like experience, understanding safety yeah. margins, um, just getting more, more, I guess, getting more expertise with actually using the equipment, patient selection, all those sorts of things. Definitely, definitely, yeah. But when you look at the, uh, like you say, um, when you look at the HR, the hair removal lasers, you know, um, you know, we're still running the same laser compared to Laser Clinics Australia as well, you know, the Gentle Lace Pro. Um, that yeah. laser's been out for what, close to what, 13, 14, 15 years, but it's still yeah. a bloody good laser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. It definitely does the job for sure. Um, just out of curiosity, what is the downtime on a resurfacing these days? Because I, I've sort of remember seeing photos from sort of 10, 15 years ago where people sort of go and need to hibernate for, you know, four or five weeks before they're able to be uh, acceptable for public consumption. Is that, is that sort of still the case or are you sort of refining that sort of downtime a little bit more? Well, I was going to say, why don't we break down the whole treatment from like what's uh, involved yeah. in like prep and, and all that kind of stuff and then we can talk about the downtime as well because there yeah. have been a lot of people who have never experienced a laser, including me. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, uh, what you want to do is have a look at pathology. Yeah. So back to back to basics. Where is the uh, where's the pathology? Is it is it dermal? Is it epidermal? Is it just pigment? Uh, if it's if it's just pigment, the downtime bugger all. Yeah. Something like a um, you know even a BBL IPL slash fraxel downtime maybe three four days and and Bob's your uncle. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty easy. Once it becomes dermal and you go well, you know um, there's a good amount of elastosis, there's a good amount of wrinkling, that's when you start going, okay, uh, I'm going to use an ablative laser. Do I use fractional ablative laser, series of treatments, or do I use fully ablative? So that's the thought processes, yeah? And then from there, um, once you figure out the actual uh, pathology, right, patient's expectations, patient's downtime, patient's skin type. Skin types are important because the laser which I would use on, for example, on you would be very different compared to uh, someone like myself, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll go with a, you know, someone like you with, with a with a powerful CO two. Someone like me is probably a less powerful CO two because yeah. for me, I will get PIH hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. So that that's very very important because you, your downtime, your skin type. So you put all of that in an algorithm and you come out with a particular uh, wavelength. Yeah, whether it be laser or wavelength. And then from there, you make sure that they don't have any contraindications. Yeah, so very important around the eyes. I have a really good look. Make sure they don't have any pre-existing atropion because you can tighten and pull pulls it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, full history. Yeah, history. Make sure they're not using contact lenses because um, you get some aritis and also not only that, you can get um, a conjunctivitis, blepharitis, um, 
because you, when you when you laser around your eyes, <laughs> it's a, you're a real mess. So you got to make sure they don't wear their contacts. And then the whole history, yeah, uh, medications, because uh, you don't want nasty surprises with bleeding, especially when you're using the erbium. And most importantly, your um, uh, history of HSV, cold sores, yeah, and yeah. all your staff courage. So that's the medical side of things. Then when we get them in, generally speaking, for ablative lasers, you have to actually give them a tiny bit of sedation. It is a very painful procedure. So what do you give them? So it d- depends. Uh, if it's a fractional procedure with CO2, something like a mix of um, a Valium uh, together with Mesindol Forte, uh, but then we do nerve blocks, uh, 23-7 numbing cream and a Zimmer. That right. usually will hold it. With someone who has um, significant sun damage and you're going to do a fully ablative, generally speaking, uh, pethidine between 50 to 100 milligrams for the pulse oximeter on that, mix it with a Dancitron, give them a little bit of Valium, uh, have our reversal agents there. But generally speaking, with that kind of dosage, it's very, very safe. Yeah, yeah. but it's still significant. You know, you wouldn't be delegating that to a, <laughs> a <laughs> someone who doesn't understand pharmacology or emergency yeah. resuscitation. But in the US, where I trained in the US for surgical stuff, man, those guys are like, holy moly. So, well, I wouldn't say all of them, but where I was, it's like we're giving them uh, fentanyl, 50 to 100 micrograms uh, push over over one hour together with my Dazolam, 5 to 10 milligrams. And that really scared the living daylights out of me because their sats would go down to about 80%. Jeez. And the operator would still be there. And, and the, the anesthetic nurse would be there just going, should be breathing on the phone or something. And, uh, and I'm just going, well, you know, something's beeping over there. So she'll give him a step <laughs> rub and just go, well, a couple of deep breaths. <gasps> and then you know, the sats go up. But it's... Might as well just give him a GA if you're going to do that. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Well, Midwest, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Cowboys. Fair enough. So what does it feel like once you've had all of these painkillers and they're, you know, slightly sedated? Like how long does the process take and, and what happens? Yeah, so it depends on the actual laser. Some, some like if I'm using the uh, powerful uh, CO2 lasers, uh, realistically it's about 7 to 12 minutes worth of treatment, but it's go, yeah. So I, don't, I hardly blink when I, when I go, when I actually start lasing, uh, you're in the zone and you basically you start wherever, left cheek, right cheek. And you keep just going uh, and you try to get it over and done with this as quickly as possible for the patient, uh, but also uh, efficiently as well. So when we're using um, powerful lasers, we can get the job done very quickly. If we're doing fully ablative, um, really deep, deep down, you know, four, five, six hundred microns together with a fractional pass, that could take about an hour or so. Right. Um, so the patients are generally speaking pretty comfortable uh, because we monitor everything. Uh, and if they have a little bit of pain, we can use a little bit of local uh, injections because when you do, as you know, when you do nerve blocks, you're not going to get everything. You know, you can yeah. do your major nerve blocks and you probably get about 70% of your face covered, yeah. Mm. And obviously I've seen you, you know, or videos of people using it. There's a handpiece and there's some little lights sort of spinning on the skin. So what what is happening and how are you like – measuring where you've been and where you haven't been and so on. Yep. So that little light spin on the skin is basically your aiming beam. Your aiming beam is different from your delivery beam generally, yeah, because that, that's your visible light. Um, <laughs> and the hardest lasers or the hardest treatments are the ones where you don't see an endpoint. 
right? Because it's very, very hard, or the endpoint's very subtle. Yeah. yeah. So, for example, when you're doing melasma treatments, we're not using a big laser, we're using a very small laser, yeah, and we're mm-hmm. de- delivering very small energies. That's when I think something can go wrong very easily, especially when you're doing the Pico lasers and you're hitting stuff and you just go, oh, not much is happening, but you're actually mm-hmm. flaring up the melanocytes. That, to me, is a lot riskier compared to using the ablative laser because when you're using the ablative laser, all you need to do is look down and go, well, oh, gee, the skin's gone. <laughs> must be working. <laughs> yeah, it sort of looks slightly frosty or, or burnt a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So w- w- the frosty ones are generally speaking the Q-switch lasers or the PKL lasers using the higher fluids. Um, but that one, the endpoint's pretty good, yeah, because when you, when you look at it, you just go, oh, that's a nice endpoint. Yeah. yeah. The really tricky ones are when you don't see an endpoint and, and you just keep going. That's why when the energy devices, devices things like the – we talked about the high flu, yeah, with the uh, health therapy, you don't see an endpoint. You can no. keep pulsing, yeah. <laughs> so that can do major damage. Fair enough. And so you said you can do pretty much a whole face with an ablative laser or an erbium or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's pretty commonplace, yeah, to, to do entire face, yeah. Okay. And then the downtime, David was asking before. So, <laughs> downtime uh, downtime would depend, depends on what buttons I press. It depends how many times I go past. So generally speaking, fully ablative, minimum of about one week, minimum, yeah? Yeah. Uh, most of them uh, go up to about two weeks, very rarely longer than that. Certainly when you're doing noses and, and carving out rhinophimas and, and things like that, the downtime's longer. When you're doing actinic colitis on your lips, the downtime's, you know, two weeks. Mm. But generally speaking, uh, rhinides and, and, and elastosis, about two weeks, but then that's just the epidermis recovering. <laughs> then you've got your rebound redness. So if I use a CO2, I normally tell patients between three to six months uh, of redness. Uh, I can generally terminate the redness six weeks, seven weeks with vascular lasers. Yeah. But I want the patients anyway, yeah. So it's a, it's a long process. It's a lot of patience for, for the patient to sort of put up with two, one to three weeks downtime, up to six months of redness. So when do they see the final, final result where they go, oh, wow, my skin's looking awesome? Um, they see the final result. They see the initial result at one week because you, you literally, if you select the patients carefully, you virtually remove, you know, that two, three decades worth of, worth of sun damage, yeah? Yeah. So they, they hate you for the first week, absolutely hate you. And then yeah. at week one, they come in and go, this is so good. Yeah. And they kind of forgive you after that, yeah? But the first week, oh, man, it's yeah. like bad. When I refer them to our skin therapist, I'm like, look, um, just be prepared to look like a nuclear Holocaust victim for a couple of weeks, and then, and then you'll really like it. <laughs> <laughs> but generally speaking, for the massive ablative ones, I tell patients, much like facelifts, yeah, you try to just do it once in your life. Yeah? So you got to time it right. And usually you know, they're in their 50s or in their 60s. You know, like, you know, it's a big procedure, but, but that's it. Yeah. And then I see them, you know, even a decade later, and when you look back at the photos, they're pretty good, yeah? Yeah. Because generally, generally speaking, when you tell them to wear sunscreen after that, they do. <laughs> it's a shame you couldn't do uh, lasers and this type of stuff during COVID lockdown. You, you know, it would have been the perfect time. People locked away for two or three months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, no, I did, we, did, we didn't do it. I, I know, however, there's some dermatologists, I won't tell you who, but some dermatologists who, got, who personally got their, uh, their face done during COVID time. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the general, I mean, that, that, that's funny, yeah, because um, like I said, it's got good downtime during that period. <laughs> now, when you're looking at, um, and I guess we'll, we'll maybe we'll, we'll cover like, uh, I guess things that can go wrong as well, like uh, complications, but I was curious as to how you sort of treat the body these days because uh, as far as my knowledge goes, the, the skin structure in terms of 
um, the way it's laid out is very different between the face and the body. The face tends to be a lot more forgiving, a lot more stem cells, tends to bounce back a, a little more quickly. How do you go like treating the body? Because the neck and that sort of crepey area, you know, arms, all that sort of stuff. Because you sometimes see these people wandering around, they've got a face of a 40-year-old and their body's like 80. And it looks like that someone's sort of put like a Lego set together and they've got the pieces <laughs> wrong, you know. Just how do you try and make people look like humans when you've done, you know, their face and everything else looks like looks terrible? Yeah. The answers were difficulty, yeah, because for those, like you say, physiologically, you've got to respect um, the anatomy there. And like you say, the lack of stem cells, lack of, lack of pilosebaceous units, because when you're ablating your full ablation, you still rely on your um, air follicles, yeah, your pilosebaceous units to actually repopulate normal skin. And with your neck, chest area, um, it's less compared, compared to the face. So with that, there's no shortcuts. You, you, we can't be a hero and try to do a big ablative procedure. We, most of us would still do a uh, fractional. Sometimes I do ablative, but the ablative is, is nowhere near compared to, to uh, facial skin. So that's where I guess fillers come in, yeah? So I, I use a lot of um, collagen-stimulating fillers, yeah, the cal calcium hydroxyapatite, the polyallactic acid, especially with the former. Uh, in hyperdilute concentrations. And when you do a crisscross pattern, especially around your neck area and, and decolletage, that can give a really good uh, outcome. And sometimes I combine that with gentle fractional lasers because the lasers treat your the top part, yeah, your epidermal part, and, and that's pretty easy because we've got pigment and all that, that's pretty easy. When you've got elastosis and you want to actually generate some collagen, that's when the calcium hydroxyapatite comes in very nicely. Is there any reason why you choose the, the calcium um, biostimulator over the other one? The other over brand. the poly-L? Yeah. Um, well, I think when it comes to uh, – I do poly-L for, for uh, as you know, it's, it's inherently very safe here because we've been using it for HIV lipodystrophy for the, for the past, what, 15, 20 years. Yeah, yeah. So um, I use both, but I've, I've, I guess, gravitated towards uh, calcium hydroxyapatite, yeah, probably about five, six years ago. Okay. I, saw, I saw it in a lecture many years ago in the US, uh, and then I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Let, let's try it. Because, uh, in fact, I think Sabina Fabi also did quite a fair few, quite a fair few papers. I, I saw her presentation in, in Prague, I think, about four years ago, 2016. It's funny because at that stage, um, the Russians were doing it as well. So I spoke to Sabina and I go, hey, you know, what's your dilution? Our dilution is very similar because she lives in San Diego. So it's funny because our dilution is, is much more uh, – Less, it's less dilute compared to the Russians. The Russians were diluting it one in eight. We're diluting it between one and three to one in four. Because you need the potency. Yeah, yeah definitely. Hotter climates. Yeah. And for the, for the well, even the ejectors listening who maybe don't do biostimulatory fillers, like what sort of face or skin are you looking at? And you're like, yes, you're a candidate for that. Yeah. I think if you, there, there are some patients which I see, which are obviously they, they're in understandable set. Phobic to, uh, phobic to lasers. And when I look at the amount of elastosis, I just go, wow, you know, you did really well with lasers, but I've got another solution. And that's when I use the um, biosymmetry fillers. Okay. So patients with significant elastosis, with significant amount of wrinkling, um, and if you're using it subdermal, intradermal, you can get a really, really good response, yeah? Mm. And I use that a lot for acne scarring, but when it comes to cosmetic patients, that's usually the... the Classic case, lots okay. of sun damage, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. 
Um, something that we struggle with in my clinics is um, patients that are sort of, you know, taking things like tanning injections and all these sorts of things, and they're sort of not honest about it. And then you can sort of overshoot and, and sort of cause damage. It's very hard to prove whether they were on these things or not. And it can make a, a significant difference in the way the skin responds to these treatments because the melanocytes are just so hyperactive. How do you sort of deal with that? It's a bit of an issue. Yeah, I think it's hard, yeah, um, because <laughs> we keep asking the question and I guess it, it, you're trying to actually get it out in history. Uh, are you using anything? Are you using anything? And then they go, no, you basically just keep going. Sometimes, I mean, it's funny because last week I was doing um, revision in the temple area and uh, as I was, so, so I, I basically just touched the temple and go, you've got some filler there. You know how it feels a little bit boggy with mm. the filler, yeah? So, uh, you go, yeah, you've got some filler. Go, oh, no, I forgot to tell you. Okay. okay. <laughs> it's like you ask him three times before and have you had any procedures? Have you had anything? No, no, no. Obviously, I didn't yeah. ask if you got uh, filler in the temple because that's been too specific. But yeah. I think it's hard because um, we've got to work around it. Yeah. And the only way around it, I guess, is to ask many questions um, and, and go from there. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. Um, your consult- like my consultation form has now just become bigger and bigger because people don't volunteer until you ask a specific question, in my experience, anyway. Yes. No, mm. no, it's true. It's true. And especially when we're doing injecting as well, yeah, with, with your uh, <laughs> with your vitamin E and your frigging krill oil and, and the whole lot, the echinacea and, and, you know, the whole bleeding list. They go, oh, no, I forgot to tell you that. Oops. Well, you, you yeah. know, you could say, are you on any omega, are you on any krill, any cod? No. And then you get to it and it's like, oh, I, I, you didn't ask salmon oil. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's not yeah. a fish oil. Yeah, salmon oil. <laughs> so, mate, I, I hear you loud and clear. It's the same problem I get. Yeah. So. Something else that we tend to struggle with a little bit in my clinics, I ask for your advice is, you know, sometimes you get patients that, you know, every so often you're going to get a complication, something that doesn't doesn't go right, you get a burn. Yeah. And a lot of the times these patients will end up in an emergency department. Um, and it seems like in some instances they're getting bad advice because the, the doctors or, or people that are caring for them in these departments don't um, don't really um, know about these cosmetic lasers. And they're like, you know, wrapping these wounds up and sort of keeping them sort of, or keeping the heat in and then the complications get worse. It's something that, that we struggle with we struggle with in my clinics a lot. And um, do you have any advice on sort of, I guess, for therapists listening or people that, you know, sort of dealing with a lot of, you know, these laser hair removal clinics that, is, that, that run into these sort of problems? Do you have any sort of solutions? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the well, I don't have a solution, but the, the, at the end of the day, yeah, yeah. Um, as a tertiary referral center, I see a lot of problems. Yeah, in fact, probably one or two a day. Everything from filler reactions to, I mean, I see a lot of filler reactions, but everything from that to laser burns to chemical peel burns to my worst case I saw just last month was carbonization of vitiligo, full phase of vitiligo with CO2. Um, wow. It's, I guess, there are, in different states, you'll have a couple of um, either plastics or derms have a real keen interest in complications. I know Phil Beckor really does have a, a keen interest in Melbourne uh, and in Brizzy. I really like complications, yeah, because it's, I think it's what we train for. It can be, that's why I always say I like uh, hard cases. I don't like problem patients, yeah. <laughs> I like problem cases. And um, I guess teeing up with a derm or plastics in your state who, who have a good understanding of, I guess, of, of things and are respectful to everyone because there's some dickheads out there who just go, well, you know, you're not, you're not whoever. I'm not going to treat uh, your patient. That's, you know, that's ridiculous. But to be aligned with one of these guys, which means um, the patients can usually be seen within the day, sometimes even within the day. As you know, if we get a burn very early, we can actually 
reduce a lot of complications, yeah, especially scarring. Um, and the sensible wound dressings, you know, swabs, um, things like that, yeah, and, and prophylactic antibiotics. Sometimes we can really prevent stuff. Uh, so bottom line, get the patient seen by someone as soon as possible, even even within that day. Most of the time we can salvage stuff, yeah. I guess a broader question, taking on the responsibility of, you know, those tertiary cases and, and people who, who've had problems elsewhere, have you ever had a patient who then turns around where the result wasn't so great longer term and, and sort of tried to pin the blame on you? How do, how do you sort of juggle that responsibility? I, I think that's hard, yeah. But the, the thing is, careful documentations all, all the way. So that's why I write a letter to the patient. I write a letter to the to the GP or to the clinic. Yeah. Uh, document everything. Take a photo of everything, and then after that, go through the the uh, the risk benefit ratio of everything we do. Because, yeah. for example, like fillers, for example, just give you an example. When you have um, non-HA fillers, and they've classically from you know someone's gone to China or Vietnam or whatever, had fillers and come back and you have no idea what's in it. It's resistant to uh, high lays. Yeah. You do the uh, the MRI and it shows filler everywhere, including <laughs> the temple and all. So that one, you know, you, you've got to tread very carefully, yeah, because anything we do, even the corticosteroid injections, five few infections, uh, injections or even incisions, that potentially can make everything worse. You may cause, you know, uh, like, like you suggested, you know, another granuloma, you may cause infections, you may cause a lot of bad things yeah and yeah. even with the corticosteroid you may even cause blindness from that especially around the periocular area so i guess with that it's careful documentation but most patients i guess are, are pretty pretty uh, i guess that they're, they're pretty grateful yeah because a lot of people won't actually touch these uh, and i've had you know as soon as you get good success you just go yeah that's pretty good yeah, yeah. and and how have you sort of um, built that network so people know to refer to you um i guess it's just word of mouth yeah, so um, a, a lot. I guess uh, I, I used to do a lot of talks in um, in Brisbane, but I'm usually talking in NSS or, or you know one of the meetings at least every three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and usually at the end, I just give three or four deck of slides with side effects, and yeah. then they go, "Oh, cool." Some of my side effects as well. Yeah, so it's like, "Oh, this is what I did to this." Yeah, check this out. <laughs> Fair enough. So what, what do you think the future looks like if you sort of had to, you've had your crystal ball there, your laser crystal ball there, what, what do you think the future is going to look like for lasers? So if we sort of cast our mind forward maybe 10 years from now, um, what do you think lasers are going to look like? What do you think we're going to be able to achieve? Not much. No, I'll tell you what. You, know. <laughs> <laughs> you want to hear this big spiel and, hey, you know what, this is great laser. But I think at the end of the day, um, it's, how, <laughs> it's how physiologically a body can react to the laser. So when we're talking about things like uh, Pico lasers, yeah, the big buzzword over the last seven, eight years, I got there early. Uh, when the Pico laser came out, Phil Beckel got it first and then I got it the second and go, cool, it's a Pico laser, it's short, super short pulse duration, a thousand times better than a nano. And then realized <laughs> very quickly it's got, it's got good benefits. But then once we hit the, the threshold of what, I guess, physiology can do, which is basically to remove pigment, and when it comes to tattoo, even though you shatter it to a million pieces, your macrophage just can't carry it quick, quickly enough to quickly enough to your lymph nodes to get it cleared out through your reticular endothelial system. So even though you get technology there, at the end of the day, it's your um, it's your physiology. So when it comes to things like um, ablative lasers, you know the laser technology may be there, but then we we're the ones that are rate limiting factors. Yeah. 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 
And what about things like plasma? Because we had um we had a, a discussion piece of episode earlier. Was it earlier this year, Jake? I think it was. Yeah, about I don't know ten episodes ago. Yeah, and they were talking about these plasma arc technology. So this is it fifth state of matter, fourth state. I don't know how many states it is. Fourth, is it fourth state, fourth state. Yes. Yeah. So the the cold plasma, uh, plasma arcs, plasma pens, uh, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Look, um, I haven't got one. I I, uh, I was going to get one. Actually, they're not that XP. They're only like like three, four thousand, or even cheaper for a pen. And then you get yourself the Aaron Bovey ones. I think they're the, they're the big ones. That that's like sixteen thousand from my last recollection. <clears throat> the only reason why I don't use them is because I see too many side effects. <laughs> yeah. I see a lot of side effects, obviously from because once again, plasma is not regulated yet. So which means it doesn't fall under laser. Uh, which means anyone can get one within reason uh, and can use it. So I see a lot of um, periocular scarring from plasma. Yeah. But, but once again, you know, to be fair, it's probably the, it's both, I wouldn't say it's the technology itself because um, I'm sure if you're careful, you can get bloody good results. But I think it's maybe the user as well. So the, re- the reason why I don't use it is because I have a lot of more predictable uh, treatments out there. Yeah, uh, lasers, for example. Yeah, just to qualify, when we had our guest on talking about plasma, he wasn't talking about the pens. He was talking about the big plasma machines that deliver, you know, deep into the dermis and stuff. So it was a bit different. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the Aaron Bozai ones, yeah. Um, the, what was it? Aaron, yeah, yeah. yeah. Company now, but yeah, yeah. Um, we got some guest questions that people sent in because they were gagging to ask you because they don't have any access to you so we had um leia in bondi she's a registered nurse i don't actually understand the background to this question but she said please ask him about his fraxel settings 10 to 12 passes any side effects does that make any sense to you yeah yeah i mean a fra- fraxel um they've got you do on label you do off label off label is is that yeah anything more than um eight passes yeah um, so I do a lot. I do actually 16 passes, 22 passes. So th- the answer is that, yes, there are side effects. <laughs> so, the main side effect is what, what – so when we talk about um, passes, yeah, so how Fraxel has done it, they've got a roller system. And each time you roll, the computer figures out how many uh, – what percentage there is. So in theory, the Fraxel she's talking about goes up to about 70%. Mm-hmm. Anything off that is called, I call off-label. Yeah. So when I do stuff, it may go up to 92%, 96%, still not 100% because you're firing in the same hole. Yeah. So the answer to the question is that the more skin that's, uh, a, you know, even though it's non-ablative, but the more skin that's treated, the higher the risk. Yeah, that, That's why fractional lasers are there to begin with, is to lower the risk and lower the downtime. So um, main side effect, uh, staph infection. Yeah, So if you do high-level passes, Generally speaking, it's good to actually cover them with some antibiotics anywhere between three to seven days, something like doxycycline and erythromycin. Tetracyclines are pretty good for staph. Uh, And then you increase your HSV, yeah, which can be pretty disastrous as well. So the answer is yes. Yeah, and if you treat melasma uh, with that, you're in big trouble uh, because you put too many passes, too much heat, and you piss off the melanocytes so they'll kick back. They'll slap you in the face. So not a good idea. Fair enough. Um, we had another one from, well, the username is Krishna68. I don't know if I know her. Um, how do you treat skin type 4 to 6 differently when it comes to skin layering, lasering for acne? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, very easy. Lower density, but also most importantly, uh, tell the patient that will, they will have PIH. So post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation is not negotiable. Uh, basically, my... One of my mentors, Prof Go, in fact, I'm doing a webinar with him in, I think, next weekend. Uh, really smart guy from Singapore, he used to run a National Skin Center. 
basically said, Davin, if you're going to treat darker skin type, tell them it's a trade. The trade the scars for pigmentation, pigmentation between three and six months. If they don't accept that trade, don't treat them. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it. I, I treat them, they get PIH, but I, I'm very careful with the density I use. So anywhere between 3 to 5%, depending on the laser. So it can be done. How can you treat the pigmentation, or is it just it will go on its own? Most of the time it's self-limiting. So you can pre-bleach it with, you know, your hydroquinone, your tyrosinase inhibitors, post-bleach it, you can use your Q-switch lasers and sunscreen. So it's, it's not too hard, yeah, but um, you, that's the trade. You've got to do it. Fair enough. Now we're going to get you back for a second podcast, but this, this <laughs> question is probably more relevant to that, but I'll ask it now. So Maurizio Serin in Germany said, if you had to pick one, which active skin ingredient could you not live without and why? For yourself, I guess. I guess myself. Probably, I mean, look, um, if you go back to basics, it's probably vitamin A, yeah, because um, yeah, apart from sunscreen, it's not an active one, it's ABCs, it's got to be vitamin A. C may cause irritation, B, niacinamide is mainly preventative, but A has got the most amount of research. Plus, um, we can use different strengths, uh, retinoids or retinoic acid. Um, it's a very, very good um, active, yeah, and we can play around with the concentration. Um my girlfriend asked me to ask you a question, so I'm going to be in trouble if I don't ask it. So this is for <laughs> Amelia. She's asked me to ask you, if you had to recommend one laser treatment for overall anti-aging, um, what would it be and why? Well, it depends. Um, I, I still like the, the 1927. Yeah, so if I go, uh, if it's generic, I'd say Fraxel, uh, high density, because it treats a lot of your uh, epidermis and the bulk heating as well with the laser can tighten up the dermis. Even though I don't like the company, you know, the company is really, you know, they're a bunch of, you know, wankers, but the, the wavelength, <laughs> the wavelength is unbelievable. Yeah, the wavelength, the 1927 wavelength, and by serendipity, they actually deliver it in a certain way that would bolts heat the dermis. Um, and they charge you a shitload for the consumables, um, but it's still a bloody good laser. <laughs> yeah, right. What are your thoughts, Davin, on um, things like microneedling or PRP? For you know, people are always talking about building collagen and 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 you know doing things outside of laser that are going to try and get the same effect. What what do you use in your clinic? Yeah, I, I still microneedle, yeah, so I microneedle to actually get um, the drug delivery into the dermis rather than uh, remodel the epidermis. Um, in fact, David, I probably, uh, I was just doing some gardening today, actually. I was doing, I was trimming my aquarium, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Plants. And, you know, it's almost universal that, that when we're doing, I'm sure it's with your bonsai as well, yeah, when you prune or when you cut, even though it's superficial, you stimulate stuff below, yeah, so you yeah. stimulate new growth. Yes. Yeah. Microneedling does the same. So even though you're, you're very superficial, you're just trimming the top uh, with the epidermis, the, the background behind that is that it generates cytokines, sends a message to the dermis and goes, let's lay some new collagen. So look, at the end of the day, there's science behind it. Yeah. Um, I still use it. PRP, there's no science in the context of skin, certainly in the context of um, when we're talking about yeah, joints and all, there's a lot. But PRP, there's not much. But microneedling is much like what we're doing, pruning the top but then we're stimulating new growth. So even something that hits your epidermis can actually uh, improve uh, your skin dermally. So what pens or, or microneedling devices do you guys use? Uh, I've, I've, used, so I've got everything from a doctor pen to a derma pen to a roller. And people go, shock horror, you use a roller. Yeah. I think just, just a couple of days ago, I was just rolling someone's um, forehead because I re it's a need for speed. I just need to get you know a lot of little holes in that area because I need to get stuff in there yeah uh, call it a steroid oh, no i was doing 
Ah, off-label polyolactic acid, uh, dilute one in 18, uh, forehead scars, because he, he's got no, um, the, the collagen is, he's got very poor collagen. Right. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, my last time I did it, um, I think Thursday. Yeah, Thursday. Um, I did, I think I even posted it on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, straightforward Dermarola. Still cool. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a doctor pen at home. I do my face and my neck every four to six weeks. Just not working. in the cupboard, huh? <laughs> not working. <laughs> mate, come on here. I'll give you a proper laser, mate. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, talking about Instagram, it's something we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it. Um, your YouTube channel is massive. You've got like more followers than Joe Rogan or something. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, uh, no, where, how did this all like, because when you started, it would have seemed like you were probably one of the only people out there sort of putting yourself, as you said earlier in the podcast, so you sort of your colleagues were frowning upon you because you were doing, putting yourself out there. What sort of... Uh, sort of motivated you to sort of get, in, get into the digital uh, social media world? And how's it worked out for you? Obviously, well, but... Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, that's why a lot of my colleagues ask me, why do you do it? And I say, basically, what you do is you just figure out uh, five conditions that you see most, which probably accounts for 90% of your work. Instagram, the shit out of it, and YouTube, the shit out of it. And at the end of the day, your patients will be more educated and you can spend more time on important things. That's the whole reason I do it, yeah. So when you look at my uh, 101.skin, the other one, Dr. Davin Lim, is a little bit fluffy because that's skincare and stuff. So contrary to what my patients think, I'm not there, you know, obviously I'll, I'll answer the question, but I'm not there to, to you know, uh, debate <laughs> the, the, the different pHs between vitamin Cs. Um, but I think it's very important. Hence, that's why I actually created it is because I think the, the information is important. Uh, we can breeze over it too quickly. There's a lot to digest, um, and hence that's why I do it. <laughs> So in some ways, you're making your life easier because you don't have to spend as much time during the 100%. consult because you've already pre-educated your clients. Yeah, 100%. So that's why I guess with the with the 101.skin, I'm building up a website at the moment, yeah, with um, categorization of, of the Instagram feeds. Patient calls up, um, reception takes the call, gets an email address. Basically, oh, what you hear for acne scarring, bang. And it's little snippets which patients can understand, which means they come in, they're a lot more, I guess, um, a little more educated, yeah? Yeah, and I guess that makes them trust you more, right? If they, it helps with the trust. Yes, do you know yeah. what I mean? If they're if they're educated, you guys are on the on the same sort of wavelength. Sorry, pardon the pun. You're on the same wavelength in terms of being able to communicate on a level where they understand what you're talking about. It sort of it just it sort of helps with that rapport and helps them trust you, trust the procedure. You know, when people understand things, there tends to be less apprehension about it. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So when I look at my other colleagues who, who Google AdWords and then you know comes into a landing page where maybe there's too much promise with stuff, yeah, I think some patients gravitate towards that. I probably want the patient who's actually more uh, understanding, more edu- educated, and go, "Wow, you know, um, this is how it actually works, and I can understand this." Yeah. So I think. Look, I'm not against Google Ads because I we still do it for acuteness. Yeah, when it comes to dermal therapists and nurses, but. I prefer education's work for me um, and, and, you know, it's the best advice I can give my other colleagues as well is it doesn't have to be, you know, um, aesthetics. You know, if, if you are, for example, someone's uh, specialising in nails or hair disorders, basically just Instagram the hell out, hell out of it, yeah, and, and that way patients can be better informed and understand the thought process behind it. Do you run your own Instagram, Devin? Are you literally there plugging away, planning your posts or do you have a bit of help with that? <laughs> No, I mean, my, my bigger account, um, I got some help. I, in fact, for six months I didn't, and that's when you can tell it's all mess and, and you know, my abstract thinking and stuff like that. But, um, so that's the big, the big one. I, uh, I create the content, 
because content's pretty easy. Yeah. Uh, design side of things, I give it to my girls to, to, to sort out. My one-on-one.skin, that's more content related. That's the one I do myself. So I wake up in the morning for the first uh, 40 minutes. I do two posts, uh, write some content, uh, get get a couple of ideas, and that's my social media for the rest of the day. So, because you started the 101 profile, what, three or four months ago? Yeah, yeah, in March. It's just after Cosmeticon, yeah? So Because I, I remember you said that you were kind of doing that as a bit of an experiment to see if you could play with the algorithm. What were you doing? Tell us. Spill, yeah, spill yeah, the so, secrets. There's <laughs> no secrets, actually. So, um, uh, after Cosmetica, we, we were uh, Aesthetics 2020 was supposed to be in August, yeah? So, Stephen had the plan, hey, you know, Dad, let's do a couple of Instagram things and, and see, uh, you know, let's talk about Instagram and social media. Yeah. So, I thought, you know what, I'll go from go from zero. So, Cosmetica, on the first day I got back, I think it was a Monday, I thought, cool, I'll start 101.skin. Got a text message from Stephen. Hey, Davin, what's going on with this? No one does get got new account. What's going on? So I said, oh, well, this is in preparation for aesthetics. Yeah. So the aim of that is to understand the algorithm, uh, which means I worked everything from geotag. So, for example, if you, you know, in Brisbane, put Brisbane. Um, you know, if you're in London, put London. So just trying to figure out geotags, trying to figure out um, keywords, uh, you know, optimization, yeah, but not engage. So I didn't engage a lot. Even now, I think... Yeah, engaged. I noticed that. You, you were yeah. sort of, yeah. No, because once you engage, I guess that... I wouldn't say that's true. Ideally, that's what you should do is, is to actually engage. But I think when, when when I'm churning out so many of these, something's got to give, yeah, and that's me engaging because I actually put so much content in there. Hmm. Otherwise, I'll be on it <laughs> all the time, yeah. And why do you post twice in the morning or are you doing once in the morning, once at night? No, I, I post um, usually once in the morning, but I may do two posts, which means uh, I may have one that's in reserve for the next day if I don't feel like doing a post. So generally speaking, I have, <laughs> I have a couple. It's just one of those discipline things, yeah, where, where I go, cool, uh, when I wake up, I'm going to do this, and then after that, I'm going to read some whatever, and then have, I don't eat breakfast, but after yeah. that, go to work, yeah. And do you read into sort of, you know, the whole trying to find out when your followers online and posting at that time and so on? Or you just do it when, whenever you feel like. Yeah. I think with the algorithm, when, when, you, when you have a look, especially depending on your followers, you know, you, there's two schools of thought. You can do that and that's where you satisfy your followers that are um, currently following you. Or you can post another time and that's when you get a whole new, for example, a country, yeah, um, UK or, or you know. Yeah, so I, I don't believe in that. Yeah, when, when I did the analytics uh, over over the last couple of months, um, there's a couple of good trends. <laughs> when you actually look at the analytics and you do good practices, for example, um, keep people engaged so they read the whole post. Because remember, when they engage, they can read more stuff, but there's more ads. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that Instagram like likes that. When when you do that, they kind of uh, reward you. So you, you'll see a spike. And maybe like, you know, a thousand followers in a day or some big spike. But then after that, Instagram will go, well, you know what? You figured it out. Screw you. We're going to give you only <laughs> only 30 followers. <laughs> That's why I say you cannot beat the algorithm. You, you can understand it and you can't get frustrated by it because otherwise you you just be too frustrated. Yeah, you can never win. Well, we were speaking to Subo uh, last week on a podcast and he was yeah. saying, you know, when he started – his Instagram, I think he said he started it three years ago. He said it was piss easy because, you know, the algorithm was was, was not very, um, 
you know, uh, different. And, and yeah. you just you just posted whatever you liked. And and of course, back then, if you just posted a liquid nose job, everyone was like, wow, I've never seen this before. <laughs> Whereas now there's just so much competition. Every business is on there that, you know, it's much harder. So I'm just wondering the nuances of what you've really picked out of the algorithm rather than just the standard stuff. Yeah, I guess I guess there's two schools of thought, yeah. The first one is give them what they want, yeah. So And, and then the second one is, you know, I guess the one-on-one, I really like it because I'm basically creating my content, creating my content, and say this is what I, I think is important. And what you can do this, you, you can do this amazing job. You know, you can resurface, you can you can fill it, you know, brilliant before and after, or you can just put something like wear your sunscreen every day, and then one, one will get like the wear your sunscreen every day will get like two thousand likes, and the other one will get like three hundred likes. So yeah. It does hurt your ego a little when you go. Man, this one I spent so much effort in, and you know, revised this, this, and this, and then yeah. you just have this little, yeah, little meme, and people go crazy. So I think the most important thing is that you can't take it too seriously because yeah. um, you know, because the algorithm is there to 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 please not you, but to please your followers. Yeah. Fair enough. And what about YouTube? Because that's a sort of different medium. Obviously, it's uh, visual and video, and even on your Instagram, you're mainly doing video. Do you think that that's bumping you up and rather than just doing photos yeah I, th- I think it's it's a clever way of repurposing which means i do one video but cut it up in three ways yeah yeah so basically if i do a video um and the video may be uh, eight minutes long there's a one minute segment that can go in the post yes there's, uh, there's a segment that can go to youtube and the other segment can go to igtv interesting yeah, yeah. But, so that way you, you're not you seem like you're doing a lot of work but you've only taken one take yeah, yeah. And that one take, you, you, you cut it up in three, three pieces. And then so, if you've got a blog, you can put that in the blog as well. Yeah, yeah true. And for, for YouTube, um, I, I, we don't do YouTube. We were thinking about putting IA on YouTube a, about a year ago, but we're still sort of undecided. But again, we've, we've been told that it's really, really difficult to, to get popular on YouTube now, whereas a few years ago, you could become YouTube famous almost overnight. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, well, I started, I think, 2016. So that's when Pimple Popper, Sandra Lee, started. So uh, we're tagging each other with stuff, yeah. And, and, then, and then I thought, hey, you know what, because I, I did some videos ages ago, maybe about 12 years ago, put it up on YouTube for the practice. Mm-hmm. You know, I looked and go, holy moly, the cyst video did really well. But then it's just brainless popping the cyst. But then people actually love it, something like 1.4 million views. So then when I first started in 2015, I thought, man, we're going some traction. I'm just going to do some brainless uh, cis popping. <laughs> so when I did that, it just the algorithm just went crazy. And next thing you know, I looked at it, holy shit, 4,000 followers in one night. What's wow. this cis popping thing? Yeah. So, Dr. Pimple Popper. In, yeah. 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 Pimple Popper. And it's just this infatuation with, with popping, popping zits. Yeah. So obviously I don't do that now. But in, in the beginning, I thought, you know what? To give some traction. I think the first three or four videos, that's what I did. And that gave the channel traction. Yeah, and then and then I remembered the uh, the the stat. Yeah, in 2015, every year that goes by, the amount of channels double in YouTube. Mm. So one year, 2015, maybe something like 500 million. Next year is like, uh, you know, 50 million. Next year, 100 million. Next year, 200 million. Next year, 400 million. I thought, man, I better start. I hate this, but I better start it now. So yeah. that's what I did. Fair enough. Well, mate, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you joining us. Um, thank you. Definitely going to do a second one where we talk more about skin and cosmeceuticals and maybe yep. some of the, the bullshit that 
that we're sold, <laughs> or maybe some of the good stuff as well. Absolutely, we'll we'll uh, we'll filter that. We'll filter it out. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so that'll be good. So, um, just for uh, listeners who um haven't heard of you, how would they get in contact, or, or maybe like any uh, doctors or nurses that want to refer to you, or have got some questions or what have you? How do people? What's the best way for people to get in touch and get past the gatekeepers? <laughs> so, if you have something urgent, um, it's um. 101.skin, yeah, so I'll, I'll take some urgent messages there. That, that one I'll, I'll see because that's one I actually run. Uh, Is it the a website, 101.skin? Yeah, 101.skin, uh, mainly for, for my colleagues, uh, the injectors, the colleagues, um, yeah, and the community out there. Uh, the others, I, I can get lost because the amount of bloody emails I get is just crazy. So, um, yeah, um, anything urgent, uh, 101.skin, you can certainly get in contact with me. Or they can just look you up on, uh, look up your website and get in contact with your yeah. rooms. You're yeah. in Brisbane. Brisbane, 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 Vegas, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Perfect. And what was the, is your YouTube under Dr. Davin Lim? Yeah, Dr. Davin Lim, uh, yeah. So if people want to watch cysts popping and just other popping all, yeah, spectacular mate. videos, just go. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you're really that bored, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks, mate. Have a great evening and thanks for joining us and we'll catch Thank up you. on the next one in the next few weeks. No worries. Thanks Thank a lot, you. guys. Thank you, Gavin. Thank you, mate. Bye-bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.